You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. Canada has problems. This country faces issues of systemic injustice, racism, violence, many other challenges. But fortunately, Canada has discovered a tried, tested, and true way to solve these problems once and for all with reports. With lots and lots of reports. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission released its preliminary report on Canada's Indian residential school system. As the final report of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was submitted. Mr. Shakabushi, in his very comprehensive report, makes 84 recommendations. If you can name a major problem this country faces, I can promise you that at one time or another, and often at more than one time, one of our various governments has commissioned a report about that problem. And that report probably came back with recommendations on how the problem could be fixed. And that's where the whole thing usually falls apart. We are very good in this country at reporting on problems to government. We are less than great when it comes to doing anything about what those reports say. Don't believe me? Ask an Indigenous Canadian about clean drinking water. So yeah, it's fair to be skeptical about a new report released this week regarding sexual harassment and assault in Canada's military. Former Supreme Court Justice Louise Arbour has 48 recommendations calling for major changes to the recruitment process and training of members, especially at our military colleges. Now, this report is not to be confused with the last report about sexual assault and harassment in Canada's military, which was delivered way back in 2015. But, all jokes aside, there does seem to be a difference. At least if you ask the people who have spent their lives working in this area. The tone in the report is different this time. The recommendations are different. The government receiving the recommendations is different too. And it is promising action. Now, it remains to be seen if action will happen or if this report will end up on that gigantic pile of things that Canada could have done to make things better. But for now, at least, there's hope. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Julie Lalonde is an advocate and educator. She has spent years fighting for change in Canada's military. She is also the author of Resilience is Futile, The Life and Death of Julie S. Lalonde. Hey, Julie. Hello, thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Thanks for uh, helping walk us through this. It's pretty complex. It is. There's a lot of inside baseball details that are not really easy to capture in a soundbite, for sure. Well, maybe we can start then with some some groundwork for people uh, who haven't been following this issue as closely over the past few years. What is the Arbor Report and why was it commissioned? So former Supreme Court Justice um, Arbour was tasked by the Trudeau government to do an external investigation into specifically how the Canadian Armed Forces 
looks at accountability and care for those who've experienced sexual misconduct, but also those who've been accused of it. So it was very much looking at kind of the legislative side of things. Um, This comes on the heels of a 2015 report by another Supreme Court justice, uh, Justice Deschamps. So this is something that's happened before, Mm -hmm. um, but this particular report was really looking at kind of the legislative arm of the Canadian Armed Forces and how it could be used to address the incredibly high rates of sexual violence in the Canadian Forces. I know we could do an entire podcast interview about just this, but maybe you could give us a quick sketch of just how high are those rates? Like, how big is this problem? It's significant. And I think one of the things that Justice Arbour said in her press conference when she released the report that... I think didn't get enough attention is saying that women in the Canadian Armed Forces face bigger threats from their male counterparts than they do from enemy forces. So we know that being in the military is the most dangerous job for women when it comes to sexual violence. Um, We don't have great stats on sex work, but we know there's also high rates there. But the fact that Knowing you're a woman who signed up to join the military in this country almost guarantees that you're going to experience at least workplace sexual harassment, if mm-hmm. not, you know, full-blown sexual violence. I mean, that's remarkable to me, and it's it's not getting the level of urgency that I think it deserves. So this report is certainly not the first What was it intended to provide the government with? Like, what is the end goal here? So uh, it it is on the surface, what we were told is that this was a way of looking at whether or not the military is equipped to handle sexual misconduct on its own or whether it needs more civilian oversight or certain elements sent over to the civilian system. But the cynic in me saw very clearly that this was just, well, the Deschamps report was great, but it was in 2015. It was under the Harper government. We're a new government with a new attitude. So we want our own report. Right. And that's kind of very on brand for Canada. We throw royal commissions at things and we do that kind of thing. So I maintain that the the Justice Arbour report, as great as it is, was not necessary. We did not need to get these 48 recommendations. There's nothing really new in this report. Uh, It was just a really expensive process to prove, frankly, what we already know. And we're going to talk about sort of what can be done to make sure that this wasn't a waste of time, I guess. But first, I want to circle back a little ways. When uh, the new Minister of Defense, Anita Anand, took the post, you joined us uh, to discuss some of your work and also just the culture in the Canadian Armed Forces and, and how difficult it would be to fix it. I don't want to put words in your mouth about that conversation, but I did listen to it again, and it seemed to me that you were really skeptical uh, of reports in general and what they accomplish. Um, Before we talk about the action that might come from this report, how did the recommendations in the report compare to your expectations for it? They were pretty on par with my expectations. There were a few that I was surprised by in a good way. Like there were some bold recommendations that I thought were really great, but it was still pretty high level, um, still, you know, repeating some of the things we've already known, including some interim measures that the government has already put in place. So nothing really surprising uh, and really what I expected. Um, But Also what I expected in a positive way, which is at the press conference, she was very assertive in naming the problem. She didn't shy away from being quite scathing, frankly, um, around the scope of the problem, the lack of action. 
So uh, I think we ended up where we started. Um, I don't think there's anything really revelatory in it, but I do appreciate that she was very bold um, in her assertions and recommendations. Can you briefly walk us through uh, maybe not all 48 uh, or so recommendations, but the ones that did stick out to you as striking? Yeah, so what's important to know is that right away, the government said we accept 17 recommendations right away, um, and the rest we will dig a little bit deeper into. So that's really great news. But there was some pretty significant things around having the jurisdiction in terms of who investigates a sexual assaults, that it would go back to the civilian system, which was the case until the late 90s. So that's huge. More civilian oversight, an external monitor, more direct reporting to the defense minister around statistics and prevalence. A victim's bill of rights, which is something that civilians in this country get, but there is nothing for military members, so that's great. More work around prevention, which is something that I'm very passionate about, and something that is really important, which is removal of their duty-to-report policy. And a duty-to-report policy is, on its surface, something positive, and it's that if you hear of something or witness something, you have a duty to report it. And in an environment that is truly concerned about the welfare of, of survivors, a duty to report is a good thing because it forces bystanders to act on what they're seeing and observing. But because the military approached this issue from a place of defensiveness and resistance, what instead happened is that the duty to report was translated by military members as, if you see something, report it right away. Who cares? If the victim actually consents to it, who cares if the victim actually wants to go ahead with it? Just report it so that if it goes public, you can cover your own back and saying, well, I said something, so I'm not on the hook. And so what ended up happening is you had a massive increase in what we call third-party reporting, which is reporting from witnesses, but a massive decrease in survivors wanting to actually follow through with the process hmm. because they were pushed into a process that they didn't want to be a part of. And so by removing the duty to report, it actually encourages people to come forward and talk about it, even in abstract terms. Like you can come to a meeting and say, you know, when this happened to me, I would have appreciated if someone did X, Y, and Z, and then they could take that into consideration without saying, oh, that happened to you? Oh, okay, now we have to do an investigation. Right. Like it was actually impeding our ability to move forward. Is that one of the 17 recommendations the government did accept? So yes-ish. Um, okay. They're still trying to work out some of the kinks, um, but on principle, yes, um, which is huge. So there was an interim measure put in place uh, just last week that was looking at certain contexts in which when you're trying to access services to improve the military. So the example I gave around, hey, this would have been helpful in my case. Those cases, no longer you have a duty to report, which is great. Um, but now we're looking at what does that look like in any single context when someone discloses? How does that come to fruition? So the fact that the government right away was like, on principle, yes, is tremendous okay. and a huge, huge advancement to where we've been even a few years ago, um, which means a real sign of progress, frankly. I want to ask you what this means in practice about those 17 recommendations. The government accepts them. What does that mean? Does it mean the policy changes immediately or the government sort of acknowledges and says, yes, we agree, we'll do something about it when we can? Yeah, it's more the latter, um, just like all of the recommendations. So mm -hmm. that's why the public pressure is tremendously important because some of these recommendations are quite easy to implement. So, you know, it's been the interim case that all sexual assaults have been sent over to the civilian system. 
So those mechanisms were already in motion, and now it's just going to be a permanent thing. Same thing with duty to report. Um, same thing with you know inc- increasing support services. They've already changed the name of the sexual misconduct office to make it more resource friendly and less intimidating. Like there's some stuff that they've already got the you know wheels in motion. So those will come into place really quickly. But some of the bigger pieces are going to take time. And I think that's one of the big weaknesses of the report is some of these huge philosophical questions don't have a clear pathway. So one of the recommendations that I was particularly invested in is questioning the very existence of the Royal Military College. Recommendation 29 is, do we even need a Royal Military College? That's Hmm. a huge huge assertion. Yeah. But how do you answer that question? Who decides? Right. What are the qualifications? What does the committee look like that's going to strike that resolution? Like, what happens to folks who are already in there? Like, we need another report. Yeah, we need a pathway. And that's what, you know, I, I spoke with a lot of other stakeholders after the report was released. And that was our biggest sort of shared criticism was great. Awesome. But who decides the next step? And knowing bureaucracy, it's going to be a lot of kicking things back and forth and delaying when we're so overdue for action. I want to rewind just a, a tiny bit for people who, again, aren't, aren't as familiar with this issue. What does the Royal Military College have to do with the prevalence of sexual assault in the Canadian Armed Forces? Why is it such a big deal in this report? So there's two uh, Royal Military Colleges in Canada. There's one in Kingston and there's one in Saint-Jean-Quebec. And they are both post-secondary institutions and a military institution. So when you leave RMC, you have a BA and you also have rank in the military. So it's a very prestigious place. It's very exclusionary. Oftentimes students are, you know, third, fourth generation RMC grads. We have a number of parliamentarians, uh, including folks like Aaron O'Toole, who graduated from RMC, Marc Garneau. So it's a very prestigious institution. The problem is, It is both a post-secondary institution and a military institution. And in Canada, the highest rates of sexual assault are against women under the age of 25. Well, when you have a post-secondary institution made up of 18 to 24-year-olds, where women are a very tiny minority of the participants, Mm -hmm. um, it is a breeding ground for a lot of nonsense. And you're both being indoctrinated into the military and going through an undergraduate experience at the same time. And so it has long been a huge problem, not just around sexual assault, but also uh, they've had a number of suicides on campus um, because they don't have adequate mental health support, which most post-secondary institutions have because they have that understanding built into the university experience. So it is a mess. And by the military's own admission, it was had neglectful leadership for quite some time. So it really, you know, spiraled out. But I think Justice Arbour's recommendation of re-examining that and saying, okay, yes, we need educational institutions for military members, but maybe just make it a grad school. So that you've already had kind of quote unquote real life experience or you've already had kind of more fulsome life experience before you at this impressionable age are getting all of this messaging around military and also you're trying to find your voice in the world as an 18 year old. So Hmm. that recommendation, I 
wholeheartedly agree with, but it's bold and it's not easy to solve that problem. And so I really wish that she had put some steps in place, not just because the rest of us can't figure out what those steps are, but because then it forces the government's hand to say, look, this isn't too abstract. This isn't too difficult. I've laid it out for you. It can be done. And that lack of detail is what has me concerned about some of these recommendations. Hello there, it's Peter Mansbridge, host of The Bridge, where we reflect on the issues of the day and how they could impact you. Politics, public health, technology, they are just some of the topics you'll hear about. Cut through the clutter and tune into The Bridge, a serious XM podcast available everywhere. I know that in your work, you've been fighting for years, as I mentioned, for change in this system, and particularly as it pertains to the military college. I want to just ask you for your gut reaction initially. Um, As you were reading the recommendations, what were you feeling? I straight up cried through that press conference. I was so emotional Mm -hmm. looking at the tone Like, it couldn't be more different from the Deschamps report of 2015. It just, it was night and day. Here you had the Minister of Defense, a woman of color, sitting there, taking in the information. You had the Chief of the Defense Staff agreeing with the recommendations on principle, agreeing that there's things that need to change. I mean, in 2015, the last time we had a similar report the chief of the defense staff did not agree with the recommendations and then went on to say that sexual misconduct is a result of, of biological wiring. Like it was, he was just completely and totally out to lunch. Um, and the government had a kind of a lukewarm response. So just the, the fact that not only was the report strong in many ways and, you know, quite explicit about where the problems are, it was the, the government's response and the military's response that really gave me hope that, oh man, we might be turning a corner on this thing. And that made me profoundly emotional as someone who feels like she's been banging her head against the wall for so many years. Have you heard from other survivors uh, of mm, sexual violence or assault in the the RMC or CAF uh, since this report broke? And, And what are they saying to you about it? I've absolutely heard from survivors, current and former members, who are also feeling hopeful They liked the tone of this report. They were encouraged by the military's acceptance of the report and the government's. Many, many, many survivors that I've heard from share my feelings that Minister Anand is really doing an excellent job so far, and she gives us reason to be hopeful, but they're also impatient. Yeah. Um, And so they're like, yeah, this was great. Cool. Can we go now? Like, can we go now? Uh, And that's, I mean, I I share that sentiment, absolutely. But overall, I would say that there's a a real level of like, great, awesome. This might not have captured everything we wanted it to, but she's saying some really great stuff. Now, can we move to action? What actually has to come next? And whose court is the ball in for that to happen? So like all government and bureaucratic initiatives, it's a lot of who's on first base, who's on second base. So there is definitely leadership coming from the Minister of Defense. So she's owned the fact that they have to um, pick up the torch and run with most of these things. Uh, And then there's another chunk, of course, that is within the military itself and the current uh, chief of the defense staff in figuring out uh, some jurisdictional issues. You know, it's one thing to send all sexual assault cases to civilian systems, but I work in the civilian system. 
And it's awful. And we have incredibly low rates of conviction. Right. So imagine if you're a military member trying to talk to a civilian officer and he doesn't understand the nuance or the reality of your life as a military member. So where's the training going to be for police to actually be able to handle those cases and understand what's going on there? Like there's lots and lots of those kinds of pieces that are then jurisdictional, like who's going to oversee that? So they're going to play that game for a bit of like, okay, whose responsibility is this? Um, But then, you know, the government has committed to wanting updates. I will say, um, clearly, there were many, many issues with the former chief of defense staff, Jonathan Vance, but he really started a trend of being transparent around statistics, of releasing quarterly, yearly reports on where things are at. Um, And so that level of accountability is going to continue. And that of course, gives me hope, right? As long mm-hmm. as we keep their feet over the fire, then we might see something happen. I know more than anything, you want to see progress on this and, and you want less reports and more action. How can they go about that expediently? And what will you be watching for that will tell you whether or not they're going to actually move on this? Yeah, so they certainly could, because again, nothing new came out of this report for those of us who've been doing this work. So they knew this stuff was coming and they've known what the solutions are for quite some time. So there's no, it's the will is the, the thing that's left. And so for me, it'll be how often are we getting updates as a civilian stakeholder Am I going to be pulled in, you know, and not just me specifically, but, you know, my colleagues, like, are we going to be invited to sit at those tables? Are we going to be invited to um, participate in those consultation processes to help define and refine and, and establish these new policies? If I'm not hearing that kind of outreach, then that's going to tell me that they're going back to their old ways of just closing in the ranks and being very, very insular. So the big sort of message that came out of the Alcoa report was you need civilian oversight. You don't know what you're doing and you should be accountable to Canadians. I mean, we pay for you and you represent us on the international stage, right? If I'm getting updated, if I feel like I, my colleagues and my sector are being looped in, that'll tell me that, okay, okay. They still have a door open just to crack for us to peek in and sort of give them our perspective. The last thing I want to ask you is, it's been so nice to have a hopeful conversation with you um, about this, and and I, I'm very happy uh, with the optimism and the seriousness that was conveyed. We've been here before with reports and recommendations. I don't just mean the Deschamps report. Um, any Indigenous Canadian, I think, could tell you that this government has a real talent for making pronouncements and, and saying that they understand and that people should be heard and that they're going to get this right. And then kind of letting actual things die on the vine. Um, where are you in terms of your optimism about real change? And and what could you see tomorrow or the next day that would make you feel more certain that this is going to be different from, again, from 2015, but also from every promise to fix drinking water on First Nations reserves? Totally. So... My faith and my hope is not in the Canadian Armed Forces or the Liberal government or any government. The Where I draw hope from is the fact that this report and the tone that the government is taking to this would not have happened without post-Gomeshi Canada, without Me Too, without Canadians demanding accountability 
from various institutions, from the world of hockey to the National Ballet School to the world of government to the world. Like, we are seeing scandals, quote unquote, and we're asking questions and we're demanding better. And that is what has held so many institutions accountable over the last seven years or so. And so my hope is really in that, in Canadians and what I'm seeing in them saying, hey, you know, what is going on? I mean, the conversation around sexual assault on campuses every September used to just bum me out because the media would get it wrong and campuses would get it wrong. And then in Me Too, people are like, no, 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 no. We have high expectations, fix this. And so the conversation has changed in that way. And I think this is an example of Canadians holding institutions accountable and that's forced them to do better. Whether they mean it or not, they're doing better because they know we're watching. And that's 100% of where my hope comes from. And I would say, lastly, too, around this file, again, we're talking about sexual violence, but we're also in the middle of talking about the role of police, the role of military, also the role of the Canadian flag. Like, the Canadian flag is currently being used as a symbol of hatred. And so for years, we associated patriotism and nationalism with the Canadian flag on the back of a, a Canadian soldier. And now we're asking some serious questions because we're seeing, wow, there's proud Nazis in the Canadian Armed Forces. There are people who are using the flag as a symbol of hate. What does it even mean to be proud of Canadians? What does it mean to be proud of our troops? Like, these are big philosophical questions that are also intersecting with Me Too. And I think that combined conversation is what's going to move us into a new direction because I'm seeing everyday moderates from my small town in rural Northern Ontario saying, hey, maybe we should defund the police. Like Hmm. that is so profoundly radical to where I was with these people a couple years ago, you know? And so that's what gives me hope is people are asking questions that they probably never asked before. um, And those voices are getting louder. And that's what's making people think, oh damn, we can't get away with just sweeping this under the rug anymore. That's great. I'm so glad to hear that. Thank you, Julie, for this, as always. Thanks so much for having me. Julie Lalonde, author of Resilience is Futile. That was The Big Story. For more, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. Find us on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn. Talk to us anytime by emailing hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca or by leaving us a voicemail. The number you can call is 416 416- Nine three five five nine three five, and you can ask us a question, deliver a comment, request an episode on a news topic, whatever you like. Find this podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. Tell your friends about this podcast anytime they ask for a recommendation. And as always, rate and review. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. <laughs>